Hi. Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, thanks for coming out on this lovely sunny day. It's, uh, it'll be worth the exchange of an hour's sunshine, I promise. Um, my name's Elizabeth Foy. I'm the head of adult learning here, and it's my, it's my joy and my privilege to organise this programme. I'm particularly delighted today uh, to welcome Chris, who uh, I met through his publisher, Hodder, um, who ran the corn have a beautiful um, uh, roof garden on their fantastic office building, I have to say. Um, and he was doing something uh, to talk to us about this lovely book, and we sang a psalm over the city. I was just talking to him about it. It's changed my sense of um, how we are, how we are as Christians in the city, where our where our own story is not everybody's story. And it was a it was a marvelous moment for me, and I'm really delighted he's come to talk about this really marvelous book, which I recommend to you with all my heart. It's called God's Oak Life, and if you long for uh, more God or more calm or more peace or more meaning in your life in any way, I, I recommend this book to you with all my heart, uh, which will be on sale later, by the way, at a handsome discount. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the talk. Um, Chris is, as you see, a Benedictine uh, in, a, in a community which must stretch across from America to here. Mm -hmm. uh, he's deputy warden at Lawn Abbey, which probably some of you know, uh, a beautiful retreat house. Uh, in the Midlands, and he's the spirituality advisor for the Diocese of Leicester. Lucky them. And I'm going to hand over to him. It's everything he has to say. It's more interesting than everything I have to say. <laughs> well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. That's very kind. Thank you very much. <laughs> Elizabeth has taken a great leap of faith already in saying that here we are sitting indoors on a beautiful sunny afternoon, but assuring you that it will be absolutely worth it. I think that's an evaluation that you should be allowed to make in about an hour's time, but I'm still, I'm very grateful. So I want to begin with some good news, if I may, which is this, that it is time. It is time. And the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. It is among us. And so, my friends, I would invite you to turn your lives around and orient them in that direction and believe what I truly think is good news. I think you might recognize, there's, there's a little paraphrase there. Uh, Jesus, quoting from the beginning of Mark's Gospel, or sort of paraphrasing from the beginning of Mark's Gospel, that it's not every day, or at least for me, it's not every day that you get asked to speak in St. Paul's Cathedral. You want to say something good, you want to say something that's worthwhile. I had a, a good think, and I thought, well, you know, Jesus has done quite well over the last couple of thousand years. I'll, I'll just steal some good material. But that was where Jesus began his preaching. And it was the theme of his message pretty much all the way through. It's time. Look, the kingdom of God is right among you. So why don't you turn yourself around and believe this good news? And I want to have a think with you a little about what that might mean and why that might uh, lead us to think of this life that we live, the life that we are invited to live in this world, as being a God-soaked life. Dallas Willard, 
the uh, philosopher, for, uh, late philosopher from Southern California, uh, who also was a um, prolific writer on the Christian life, uh, particularly on Christian spiritual formation. Dallas Willard said this, that the aim of God in history is the formation of a community of loving persons. With God himself at the very center of that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. The formation of a community of loving persons with God himself at the very center of that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Now, when Dallas Willard wrote that, he didn't make this connection directly, but I think that's a pretty good working definition, for me at least, of what Jesus may have been talking about when he described the kingdom of God. That it was not primarily some kind of legal or judicial or, or national or political reality in the way that in uh, the medieval era, for example, we tried to form this idea of Christendom, this, this kind of political national reality, and then and then sort of half pretend that that was the kingdom of God, that that's not what Jesus was talking about, but instead he was talking about people defined by their relationship with one another and the way that those relationships were held in relationship with God. A, com a community of loving people with God at the very center. A God-centered loving community. I think that's a good working definition of the kingdom of God. I think that would mean that what Jesus was talking about from the beginning of his ministry and then all the way through the Gospels would be consistent with what we see all the way through Scripture as what God is doing from the beginning of history to its very end, at least the way that the Bible tells that story, from the very first page of Genesis all the way through to chapter 21 of Revelation. The contention that Dallas Willard was making was that this is the aim of God in history. This is God's purpose. I would suggest that the contention of Jesus was, this is the first thing that you need to hear. This is the foundation on which everything else is built. I'm not coming to talk to you about the church or about theology or about doctrine or about um, ordination and priests or about uh, renewal and reform documents passing through general synod or any of those other fascinating things that will change the world. I want to talk about the kingdom of God, about God-centered loving community. If we, if we go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, that magnificent uh, telling of the story in the uh, first and second chapter of Genesis, one, one of my favorite parts of Scripture, the poetry of it, I mean, just the glorious storytelling that goes on uh, in those opening chapters. We have... God, at the, at the opening of the Bible, the, if you like, we're sat in the theater, the curtains open, and we have God brooding over chaos. We don't, that moment of creation from nothing that we talk about theologically or uh, in, in scientific terms when we talk about the Big Bang and, um, and that sort of uh, first cosmological instant, we don't have that in Scripture. What we have is the uh, curtains open, and it's already there, and it's a mess. And the Spirit of God broods over this chaos which we're told is formless and void and begins to form it and begins to fill it. And that's the shape of the, the days, those six days that follow. We have three days of 
of forming, of structuring, of patterning, of giving shape to something that was shapeless and therefore impossible to dwell in. It was just a vast abyss of stormy waters and nothing could live there. But by the end, we've got light and dark and land and sea and sky and everything that's needed for a, a habitation within which life can flourish. And then we have three days of that, that habitation being filled with life. And at the end of all of that, the, the, the finale of this opening act of Scripture is God's creation of human beings. In the Bible's telling of the story, I know it's a somewhat anthropocentric telling, but still, we have the creation of human beings, and these human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. This is a, a tremendously important part of the story because this is following an ancient idea that relationships can best be held by two things that are most alike. You can be most in relationship with something like you. For example, it's difficult to have a relationship with a rock. People try it, people have pet rocks. I don't think that the relationship is terribly mutual, but they do. It's a little easier to have a relationship with a goldfish. Usually not great, but still, you can feel very attached to a goldfish. I'm not sure if the goldfish terribly attached to you. You can have a more meaningful relationship with a cat or a dog. The level of intelligence is nearer to ours. There's something that enables us to relate. Chimpanzees and gorillas. And well, now we're really talking about meaningful relationships and communication. But for most of us, the most meaningful relationships we have are with other human beings. They are most like us. And that's the significance of that part of the story. God says, I want to create human beings in my image and likeness because he wants to dwell in relationship with them. It's the creation of a loving community. And you'll notice in both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, one of the important parts of the story, in Genesis 1, God creates human beings, male and female, he creates them. So there's a multi multitude of human beings from the beginning. In the telling in Genesis 2, the story progresses slightly differently, but we have that crucial line after the creation of Adam. It's not good the man to be alone. It doesn't work. So those stories are all about the creation of community as well as uh, habitations within which community can flourish. The habitation that we call the universe. Which I think is a pretty, pretty neat... You know, if you're going to prepare a guest room for somebody to stay in for a while, the universe is not a bad one. That's the story that we are told. And God looked and saw that it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. If you read, uh, though, the translation, the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek in the centuries just before Christ, you'll find... Now, of course, we know, even if we know no Greek, if we've ever sat in a church and listened to preachers being clever about Greek, we'll know that the Greeks had about 17 words for everything. They had 17 words for love, 17 words for death, 17 words for carrot cake, everything. And they had multiple words for good. And they chose a very specific word in that translation that then recurs again and again and again and again. And it was not the word that's usually used for good in the sense of morally and ethically good, something that's right. It was the word that is used for when everything has fit together in such a right and pleasing and appropriate way that it is not only uh, it is not only well ordered it is not only fitting 
but it is aesthetically pleasing too. Agathos is the word for something that's morally good, but this word for something that is aesthetically good too is kalos. And the most literal translation of it, uh, usually in Greek, is beautiful. I love that. Genesis 1, God creates one thing after another, and then at the end of each one, this little refrain in the Greek translation, and God looked and saw that it was beautiful, and it was beautiful, and it was beautiful, and then finally creates these human beings among whom he can dwell in relationship and says, that is very beautiful. Because that's what God is seeking to do to create community and then dwell within it. And we see that dwelling from the beginning as well. Yeah. Wonderful passage in Genesis 3. And I, I admit that this comes after the story of the fall or in the midst of the story of the fall. Uh, but all the same, that wonderful moment when we find that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. And you get the sense that this is not God's response to sin and fallenness. It's not that God was sat in heaven and looked down and said, oh, they've eaten the apple. I must go now and walk in the garden in the cool of the evening. It doesn't have that feel. It has the feeling of the thing that God did every evening, dwelling in the midst of the community that he had created. It's the story of the beginning. It's the story, I think, of the whole of Scripture. Abraham, come. I will take you to a new place and I will make of you a, a, a family, a tribe, a nation, a great people, I will bless you, and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. And in that, this is from Genesis 12, and that becomes the pattern of what God does through most of the rest of the Old Testament. The slow formation of a, of a people, and then the, uh, the formation of that people into a nation, and then the vicissitudes of that nation through history that follows. But God constantly trying to create from them this loving community indwelt by God himself. And then up pops Jesus in the midst of all of that and says come to tell you that the kingdom of God is now. So why not embrace this and come and live as a part of this? And, of course, a large part of the story of the remainder of the New Testament is the discovery, this is particularly the, the central theme in many ways of the, of the book of Acts, the discovery that this kingdom, this this community, this God-centered community was not only about God's people, the Jews, but that it was spilling out now beyond that boundary and out to all nations, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but into all the world. As Peter says uh, when he does his dreadful sermon to Cornelius, I mean really, you go read Acts chapter 10, Peter walked in, the, his starting point when he's invited by the Gentile centurion Cornelius is to say, well, you know that I do not associate with the unclean, but here I am. <laughs> Cornelius, it's wonderful. Cornelius is so tremendously and unfailingly gracious to, and generous and, and, and open-hearted towards Peter all the way through. And then Peter does this quite tedious theological sermon. And halfway through, very clearly, the Holy Spirit decides, Peter, that's enough. The Holy Spirit comes down, and Peter says, now I understand clearly that God shows no partiality. Now I understand clearly that this is for the Gentiles, not just the Jews, this is for all people. By the time we get to the final chapters of the Bible, what do we find? We have this magnificent vision at the end of the book of Revelation. I grant you, there's been a lot of fireworks and entertainment along the way, the kind of blockbuster apocalyptic movie that is the rest of Revelation, which I don't propose to go into now. 
But at the end, there is this incredible vision. And, and as part of this vision of the, the new heavens and the new earth, we have the new Jerusalem. Now, I love this. I want to say, up, up front, absolutely, I understand, okay, that this book is dealing in visions and metaphor and symbols and so on, and that it is just a, a disastrous mistake to try to take the book of Revelation too literally. Right? Nevertheless, I would like you to imagine that you are the kind of sad person who might sit down with a, a chapter like the chapter that describes the arrival of the new Jerusalem and say to yourself, I wonder if I, if I did take all these measurements and things seriously. I wonder what that would look like. I wonder how big that would be. I wonder if I did some research on Wikipedia, what that would tell me about population densities and so on and so forth. If you can imagine that being that kind of sad person, then you and I should have coffee afterwards. We'd relate well, because <laughs> some time ago I decided to do exactly that. Not because I thought that Revelation was literal, but because I wanted to grasp something of what John might have been trying to communicate as he described that vision. Let me tell you this. I want you to, I want you to imagine that we're all up on the International Space Station. And we're looking down, and the new Jerusalem is arriving from heaven somehow, like a gigantic, inhabitable Rubik's Cube. Because it's a cube-shaped thing. And it comes and it settles and lands on the earth, just as John describes. I want you to imagine what we might see. If this cube were to come down and land so that the eastern edge of the city of New Jerusalem were resting on the city of New York. Oh, don't worry, we evacuated everyone. We knew it was coming. It's big. We saw it a long while away. Like in the movies when the asteroids come. We, we saw it. But it, it lands and it, it just rests down. It sort of, you know, sinks the Staten Island Ferry. We, we won't... It, disaster movies are great, but we won't have it crush the Statue of Liberty because symbolically that just feels wrong, doesn't it? So we're, down it comes. The eastern gates are now where the Empire State Building used to be. The western wall of the city would be somewhere over near the Rocky Mountains, two-thirds of the way across uh, the United States. The northern wall would be up in Canada, and the southern wall would be down in Mexico, in the Gulf of Mexico. That's the scale of city that John has described. Now let's imagine, the other thing about it is it's a cube, so it goes a thousand miles up. So I need to tell you that most of it is still in space. If you are invited to live in the new Jerusalem, in the eschatological future being brought by God, and you are not on the ground floor, do not open the windows. <laughs> this is what John described. Now, if you were to be furthermore, yet more sad, and to ask yourself, I wonder, if we were to imagine, for example, that, that every floor of the New Jerusalem were a mile above the next. So, you know, we've got a lot of space for, for, for views and, and landscaping and, and weather patterns and it, within the city, you know. We'll be very generous. And if we were to look on Wikipedia and see what the estimates are for the number of human beings who've ever lived, and we were to take those estimates very generously and say, what's the maximum number that anyone has ever estimated? And then we were to say, you know what we'd like to do is to have these people have the opportunity to live in the New Jerusalem on mile apart floors uh, at about the population density that you might find around my retreat house in rural Leicestershire and not like the centre of the city of London where we're all crowded in on each other all the time because that, you know, that can be fun, but for all eternity, yes, we might want to get away from time to time, we would discover 
that there is room in this visionary city for every man, woman or child who ever lived in all of time about four or five times over. It's an astonishingly generous vision. And it's a vision of a community. It's a vision of people brought together to dwell together. And, of course, famously, John tells us, but there's no temple in this city. Why? Because God dwells among them himself. And so scripture from beginning to end is a vision of God-centered, loving community. And Jesus, at the beginning of his preaching, announces this. and says, I want to talk to you about this, what he calls the kingdom of God. And I want to tell you that the time has come and the kingdom of God is now. We are so accustomed sometimes to talking about life after death and uh, the end of all things and eternity and heaven and hell. And in Advent, we have the four last things, uh, um, uh, death, judgment, heaven and hell. We, we, we have a tendency to take a lot of God stuff and project it elsewhere. Project it into special buildings like churches. Project it onto other people who are more saintly than we are. Project it off into the future. Anywhere that we don't have to deal with it now. But that's precisely what Jesus does. Jesus comes and says, this God-centered loving community, it is here. It is now. My invitation to you is to come and dwell in it in the present moment. What happens after you die? We'll talk about that another time. In fact, Jesus talks about it very little, really. And talks a great deal about dwelling in that community right now about what it might mean to live a life soaked with the presence of God in the present moment, not in some uncertain, vague, misty future beyond the veil of death. Now, I don't know about you, but you, you may, like me, find something of that vision compelling and attractive. Most of us are hardwired to desire relationship with one another. We don't all find relationship easy. Some of us find relationships tremendously difficult. But even when we find relationships hard to enter into and hard to manage, and when we find other people difficult, nevertheless, there's something in us that still impels most of us to desire those relationships, even the relationships that we struggle with. And if St. Augustine is right, of course, there's also something hardwired in us that desires, similarly, relationship with God. That famous quote of his, uh, that our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. That's a, a, one of the most well-known quotes of St. Augustine, and with good reason, because it resonates with people. We recognize the experience of desiring relationship with God. So there's something about this idea of God-centered loving community that really draws us. Of course, the only problem is us. Not to put too fine a point on it, you know there's that cliched old saying, if you, uh, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because you'll ruin it. <laughs> but likewise, it would be possible perhaps for us to say, if you should ever happen to stumble across the kingdom of God, this God-centered loving community, perhaps you should steer well clear. Because our frequent turning away from God and turning away from one another 
all the, the brokenness, the, the twistedness, the, 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 the frailty and fallibility within us that constantly takes us away from relationship and turns us in on ourselves would be extraordinarily destructive to the life of that community. God-centered loving community would be the kind of place where human life really ought to flourish. It ought to be the place where we find what Jesus described as life and life in abundance. But I suspect that many of us would struggle to live well in it. I think we would find ourselves grating all the time up against all these perfectly loving people surrounding their perfectly loving God. We'd find that hard to cope with and we'd find it hard to participate in that too. And I think that one of the, the first things that we have to acknowledge if we are going to engage seriously with what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God and the, the presence of the kingdom of God among us now and this invitation to, within our lives to respond to that, one of the things that we have to deal with is truth, is the reality about ourselves and who we are. We all like to paint a picture of who we are, at least to the rest of the world, right? I mean, some of us have to do it less because we're fairly wonderful people anyway, and then some of us have to work really hard at it. Uh, and we have our public persona and we project all the things in us that we know are uh, socially desirable and acceptable. We magnify, uh, look at me, I'm a kind person, I'm a patient person, I'm a gracious person. Of course I'm a happy person because that's also important. All these things we, we kind of magnify and we, we try to play down all the, you know, and I'm also a very angry person and I'm a needy person and I'm, I'm going to try and hide that from everybody else and there's my public persona. But... We're not good at hiding it from ourselves. We can be in denial about certain aspects of who we are, but on the whole, when we close the door and look in the mirror and say, who is really there? We are our own harshest critics and with good reason. We know the things that we will not reveal to anybody else. We know the truth about who we are. One of the things that I find very revealing in my work in the retreat house, I do a lot of one-to-one -one work with people around uh, their life of prayer and their, particularly their relationship with God and with other people. One of the questions that I have learned to ask people over the years is this. When God looks at you, what do you think God sees? When God looks at you, what do you think God sees? When I ask that question, I learn very little about what God thinks of that person, but what I usually do is learn a great deal about how they see themselves. Because they might look in the mirror and see themselves as difficult, disappointing, a failure, a, a mess, a quite broken, twisted, wicked, wounded, whatever, a, a, a fairly truthful, maybe even skewed towards the negative, but a fairly truthful assessment of themselves. But if I ask them for that, they won't give it to me. They don't know me well enough, and so they'll give me more public persona, you see. And if I ask them to reflect theologically on what God thinks of people, what they'll tell me is all the things they learned in Sunday school. God loves people. God thinks people are wonderful. But when I ask them, when God looks at you, what does God think of what he sees in you? I tend to get a fairly honest answer about what they think of themselves. Oh, I don't know. I think that God's probably disappointed with me. I think God's angry with me. 
I don't know that God really pays any attention to me. I don't think I'm important enough. Actually, what, typically what people are saying is, when I look in the mirror, this is what I see. And I see that because I know more of the truth about myself than anyone else, and so it's relatively simple then for me to project that onto God. If I know all the truth about myself, and this is what my evaluation, then God, who knows all the truth, must have a similar evaluation, right? So I learn a great deal from that about what the way that people see themselves. I learn a great deal about people's uh, brokenness and about their, their struggles and their pain, but also about their fallenness and their twistedness, that which within us which is most turned away from God and most turned away from other people. And one of the other things that I learned through my work in a retreat house, working in a context of prayer, is that it is very difficult for many people to be honest with themselves about that, and it is extremely difficult for people to be honest with God about that. One of the things that I have really appreciated uh, about the regular round of liturgy that we have in the retreat house and that echoes the kind of uh, monastic liturgy that you would find in a Benedictine community is the constant immersion in the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms is a book that seeks to tell the truth to God. And I find it's a great antidote to the games that we play. That we, when we pray the Psalms, we are forced to articulate truths which we are uncomfortable saying about ourselves and certainly very uncomfortable saying to God. But it is the beginning of transformation. To acknowledge, to go back to this idea of the kingdom of God, that we are not people who are well-placed to flourish and live well within God-centered loving community. It's important, it's essential for us to be able to acknowledge this. Let me tell you a little story that may help to illustrate why I think that is. Some years ago, I, had a, uh, I was um, ministering in a little local church in South Wales. It was around the time of evening prayer. I think we had just said evening prayer. I think it must have been. I had stayed on behind afterwards. I was tidying up the church. A woman walked in, came over and said, do you mind if I just have a word? No, I said, fine. So we sat down in the pew and she began to talk. And she began to unfold her story. Uh, and the short version of a very long story was that she had been through a tremendous experience of um, betrayal from someone with whom she'd been living for a number of years, her partner with whom she'd been living, uh, who had announced a few months before that he was leaving her, and in the process of uh, breaking this news, told her also that he was leaving her to go and live with her best friend, and that he'd been carrying on an affair with her best friend for a number of years, and had hidden this fact from her, as had the best friend. So you can imagine this was a devastating experience for her. She told me that she had been and seen various counsellors and therapists and so on because it had caused such issues. There, there was, it had created a bitterness and an anger within her that was consuming her from the inside out. She was really struggling with this. But she hadn't been able to get past it, hadn't been able to get through it. She told me that she was, this was her description, she told me she was not a Christian, she was not a person of religious faith or religious commitment at all. But she had been walking past the church and she had thought to my, herself, I've tried everything else. Why not try this? 
So, you know, it's of great faith like this that mighty miracles are born, I think. So she had wandered in to talk to me, and I said, okay, um, well, look, I'm not trained as a counsellor. If you would like to see a counsellor or a therapist, perhaps a Christian counsellor or therapist, I'm sure I could arrange that for you. And she said, that's very kind, but no. I've been down that road. It was helpful, but I'm still stuck. And I said, well, look, I need to be very straight with you. Uh, I'm a priest, and what I do is help people to pray. That's my only talent and gift. And I'm not all that good at that, but I'll do my best. Uh, I can offer that to you and and nothing more. Is that something you'd want? And, And she, inspired by her mighty faith, said, Hmm? (laughs) we can give it a go it wouldn't hurt I said right let's do this I said okay so here's the thing really there uh, um, I want to give you my prayer 101 my my basic introduction to prayer and it goes like this God already knows everything there is no point lying to God so here's where prayer starts you tell the truth you tell the truth about who you are to God. I said, let, let me ask you, what is a little bit of truth? This fellow uh, who treated you like this, how do you feel about him? She said, I wish he were dead. So I said, as any pastor in that circumstance would have done, I said, then that's what you should pray for. <laughs> <laughs> You should pray for him to die. <laughs> Oddly, I'm not in pastoral ministry anymore. I work in a retreat house now. Just... So she said, I can't do that. And I said, well, what are you going to do? I, I mean, prayer 101, you tell the truth, right? So that's the truth. You either tell that or you say something that's not true. Those are your choices. She said, I don't think I can do it. See, there's a reluctance there that any of us might understand and share, that there are truths about ourselves we don't want to admit to ourselves, and we certainly don't want to admit quite so bluntly to God. So I said, all right, look, let's try something different. I said, in the middle of the Bible, there is a book called the Book of Psalms. doesn't matter what that means. It's basically a book of prayers, and these prayers were written by God. Now, I, can, I know that there, we could have a much more subtle and nuanced theology of the Bible, okay, but we were on a fairly straightforward level. We were operating here. I needed to try to find some... This was more pastoral than theological conversation, okay? These prayers were written by God, so they must be okay, right? I mean, God must be okay with hearing them. She said, I I guess. So I took a Bible, and I circled a passage from Psalm 55, and I, I said to her, listen, I want you to just hear these words. It is not enemies who taunt me. I could bear that. It is not adversaries who deal insolently with me. I could hide from them, but it is you my equal, my companion, my familiar friend with whom I kept pleasant company. We walked in the house of God with the throng. That bit wasn't true, but it doesn't matter. So you understand, this is the the voice of a person who has been deeply betrayed by a close companion. She understood that. I said, here's the next verse. Let death come upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. That's polite Bible language for, may they go to hell. Literally. For evil is in their homes and in their hearts. I took a pencil and circled it and I said, I want you to pray that prayer every day and I want you to think of him. She said, all right. (laughs) I went home thinking, oh, I'm good at this vicarin stuff. (laughs) Great. (laughs) 
I saw her twice after that. I saw her a few weeks later, and she came and I said, how are you getting on? She said, I have prayed that prayer every day. I said, and, and what's the result of that being? She said, he's not dead yet. <laughs> so I said, then you need to keep going. <laughs> she came to see me a third time. Last time she saw me, and I said, how are you getting on? She said, I, I have to be truthful with you. I am not praying that prayer every day. And I said, why not? She pointed her finger at me, accusing me, and said, you told me that I must never say anything in prayer that wasn't true. I said, right. I woke up one morning and looked at those words, she said, and they were no longer true. I don't like him. I'm still desperately upset, but I didn't want him to die. Something's changed. Oh, I said, what did you do then? And she said, I hope you don't mind. I had to look through some of those other Psalms and found another one and used that instead. I said, I think that's okay. I think God will allow it. You see, this is my theory of what happened. This is what I think happened to her. You know, Jesus said, repent and believe this good news. And repent is about, it, it, the word literally means about changing our minds, but in order to change our minds, we have to acknowledge where we're starting from. Here's what I think that she did. I think that she got down on her knees, at least figuratively, not literally, every day. And she came before God. Up until that point, if she'd prayed at all, her prayer might have been more pious, like one of ours might have been. And she might have said, O oh Lord in heaven above, thou knowest that this, my companion and familiar friend, has been terribly naughty and has hurt me mightily, but I dost ask that thou forgivest him as commanded by Jesus in the Gospels, blah, 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 blah. We know that's the right sort of prayer we probably should pray. It, in essence, it's a way of coming before the Lord and saying, my heart is broken, but I've got this, I'll fix it. I've got instructions from you, I'll fix it. And I wonder whether at that moment the Holy Spirit doesn't respond by saying, I don't think that's going to work, but if you want to try, I will give you the space to try. The moment that she got down on her knees and prayed the way that the psalmist prayed all the way through and took all the bile and vengeance and anger and hatred and bitterness and disappointment and darkness and everything and just threw it out there and said, I know this is ugly and this is unattractive, but here it is. This is the reality of who I am. At that moment, the Holy Spirit begins to respond by saying, oh, now that I can do something about. When you come before me and open yourself up and pronounce yourself helpless to be anything other than you are, that's the precise moment that I can begin to bring about change. You see, our lives should be characterized, shouldn't they? By love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul tells us that, right? But Paul tells us that this is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the things that we do to bring the Holy Spirit into our lives. It's the result of inviting the Holy Spirit into our already broken lives. It's how life in the kingdom of God works. We, we see approaching us this God-centered, loving community. And we look in the mirror and say, we are not the people who can flourish well in this community. We come before God on our knees and we say, I want this, I want this with all my heart, but I will destroy it and it will destroy me. And I am helpless to do anything about that. And at that precise moment, God says, you are. I'm not. 
This is the beginning of our transformation into Christ-likeness. The time is now, has come. It is here today, 1.40, Sunday afternoon. The time is now. The kingdom of God is close, at hand, and among us. You are invited. Open up your life. Turn around, repent, and believe that this is good news. I'd say I had a terrible moment there when I thought she's going to say, do you do funerals? <laughs> and she, the, the lady was going to come back to you for the third time and say, so, funerals? Yeah. <laughs> no. So, um, thank you. Thank you. I was slightly reluctant to break into that beautiful bit of silence where we took in some of what Chris has said. Um, anybody got questions? I could start if people are still thinking things over. Um, but I tell you what always happens, nobody asks at the beginning and then at the end, people, six people have got a question. So look, bold, boldly go. <laughs> so uh, some hints about how to stop kidding ourselves, yeah? Mm. Sure. Um, uh, the, the two places where I have learned the most about this, I, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that, that we can learn to be more self-aware, more um, uh, truthful about who we are and open about who we are. To, the two places I have learned the most, one has, uh, as I mentioned, um, it, it communities which take seriously praying the Psalms, not studying or reading the Psalms, but praying the Psalms. It's a, it's a strong tradition within monastic communities. It's a strong tradition within liturgical um, churches. Um, it, it can be very easy to do that in a way that actually disengages us, and it's, it's not about prayer, it's just about reading words and so on, but, but wherever that's done, there is an opportunity to pray um, and to, to continuously engage and re-engage with the experience of the people of God through the centuries as they have sought to be honest before God. Um, it is hard not to be shaped in the end, to, to, to become more open, when you are some days saying, Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That unlocks something within us that tells the truth about our, our love for God or our love for one another, our reassurance, our praise and celebration and so on. Um, but there's a lot more in the Psalms. Uh, famously, there's that wonderful passage at the end of the um, Psalm 137, the Psalm that was written by Boney M. <laughs> <coughs> By the rivers of Babylon, isn't and that's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, um, uh, Boney M had a hit with "By the Rivers of Babylon." Don McLean on the American Pie album had, a, uh, had recorded a folk song version of "By the Rivers of Babylon." It has been a, a favourite to record, uh, uh, even in recent times. Um, and of course, the Boney M hit was huge, and people dancing along to it, and so on. And, and yet, the psalm is starts tragically and descends into vicious violence. 
the, you, as some of you will know, it starts off with, we sat down and wept and, and so on. By the end, it's saying, how wonderful it would be if we could take your children and smash their heads open on the rocks. Um, there's a version from a few centuries ago of the Psalms done metrically, in other words, to be sung to hymn tunes by Tate and Brady, and it has all of them, including that. I, um, I've heard a few of those used in churches. Things when you're singing things like "The King of Love, My Shepherd," is you're, you're singing Tate and Brady type compositions. Um, never heard a congregation perform Psalm 137 hymn, you know, and, and, and enthusiastically sing about smashing open children's heads. I, I don't know why, but. <laughs> But you read that psalm and you think to yourself, that I cannot possibly be my prayer. I cannot possibly give voice to that kind of bloodthirsty voice. That's, we do this, right? That's Old Testament, vicious God. Now we're into New Testament Jesus, who's all light and love and, and flower power. That's what we do. But now I would ask this, just this question. Um, go away and read that psalm and ask yourself, could I imagine this being the voice of a mother in Syria right now? I wish I could take your children and break their heads open on the rocks. It's not pr pretty, it's not grace-filled, but it is very, very true. And it, so the Psalms encourage us to speak words of truth, even when they're ugly. The other place that I've found very helpful uh, has been 12-step um, groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, who, where, where groups which cultivate an atmosphere of, of complete, candid openness, vulnerability, and also create the kind of trust where that is possible. Um, it, it is oddly easier to tell the truth to other people first and then accept that yourself once you've voiced it aloud to others. It, it, it's a, a, a kind of a, a known phenomenon that, um, that a number of people, when they first connect, for example, with Alcoholics Anonymous, come in with a kind of public narrative of, I, I, I'm coming because Fred has invited me and I'm, you know, I'm not sure I really have a part. So it takes a little while before they will acknowledge in the presence of other people who are very open and candid, you know, I'm Chris, I'm an alcoholic, I haven't had a drink for the last so on. And people talking very openly about, I have fallen off the wagon, I'm sitting here drunk now. In that atmosphere of openness, they find the courage to tell the truth to themselves as well as anybody else. Um, so I think when we are able to create small, trusting communities of people who are able to tell the truth to one another, um, that ought to be the church. We're not very good at it. I really think it would do us a lot of good to study Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and so on. We, we ought to see if we can get, a, get them to come along. We should get some of the folks who lead them and say, come and facilitate some of our house groups and, and, and small group meetings and so on. Help us to learn. It, you know, we're brilliant at telling the truth about Romans 8.17, but we're not at all good about telling the truth about ourselves and who we are. Help us. But it, but it can be done. Yeah, sure. I, I was talking, uh, the question was, can I talk a little bit about the importance of silence that was mentioned in the description of this event, yeah? Mm. Yeah, um, I was actually just chatting with Elizabeth before we came through. Um, we, we first met when uh, Hodder brought me up here for a day to do various interviews and things when, uh, when this book came out. Um, and they sent something out saying, oh, Chris Webb has published this book, God's Hope Life. It's, it's jolly good, because they write that sort of thing. It's jolly good. Um, <laughs> And then they did a little two-line biography of Deputy Warden of Lawn Abbey, and they mentioned the uh, practice of silence at the Abbey. Um, we have about an hour uh, 
uh, or so. We have about an hour and a half or so of shared worship and prayer every day and about an, an hour of communal silence as a community. Uh, and then, of course, living in a retreat house, you are dealing with silence a lot of the time. All the interviews that I had went something like this. We'd have about half an hour or so, and the person would say, um, so it's Chris Webb, let me make sure I've spelt that right. Let me, uh, a couple of questions. So you, this book, do you, could you just summarize the book? You know, yes, I'll have a go. And so we did that. And then uh, I, I just want to ask about, you know, where did the title come from? Uh, or something, you know, deep and meaningful like that. Every single interview, the next question was, I, I read on the description that you have an hour of silence every day, and how does that work? And then the next 27 minutes would be conversations about silence, which I, I shouldn't say this, please buy the book, but the book doesn't actually talk about that a lot. And, uh, and by the end of the day, the, uh, the lady who was with me from the publishing company said, we now need to get you to write a book about silence, because I think we could really sell that one. <laughs> um, yeah, happy to say something about it, though. Uh, oh, boy, where do we start? Um, for most of us, there seems to be, I, uh, um, in my experience, uh, something very attractive about silence when we don't have any, um, and something quite difficult and disturbing uh, about it when we discover it and find ourselves caught up in the midst of it, uh, and we're not used to it. Um, from the outside, it always looks tremendously attractive. I mean, I think it is attractive. I think there are, silence is a real gift. Um, but we think of silence, and we think, forgive me, this may not be you, but many people, silence. We, we have this kind of dichotomy in our cultural understanding at the moment, I think, okay? And over here is religion, and religion is, sorry, people with dog collars, but it can um, and religion is rules and regulations, and religion is anti-things, and religion is homophobic and, and some, uh, everything phobic, actually, and, um, and, and stands against joys and simple pleasures and, and, and institutional and organized, so and tedious and boring. That's religion. And over the other side, we have spiritual. And spiritual is the Dalai Lama and, and monks and and putting little rocks in a pile by a seaside, and lighting candles by your bubble bath, and little statues of, of Bud, little fat Buddhas. You know, fat Buddha is so reassuring, isn't it? Because we can be spiritual and still eat whatever we like. So, little fat Buddhas and so on. And, 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 and jostics, and, so, and that's, you know, so it's spiritual. And, and religion is weighty and, and horrible and intrusive on our day-to-day -day lives, and spirituality is something that we can just engage in when we feel like it, to feel all kind of numinous and stilled, and, and at peace, and, <clears throat> and, and, and grounded, and mindfulness, and blah, blah, blah. So silence, for many people, feels like it should be on this side. Yeah? Uh, that's not an institutional boring religion thing. That's an attractive spiritual thing. So it's desirable. And people come looking for it. They come, they come to our retreat house looking for it. And it's not an unusual experience to have something like this, that somebody will turn up, and they'll say, I want to come. I've decided to come on a silent retreat. We have silent retreats in our retreat house up to about 10 days. In some places, of course, they'll do a month or more, but we have up to about 10 days. When people try to book in for those, we always have to have a chat with them first. What's, what's your experience? Never done this before. You might want to start with a little. No, I want 10 days. Oh, no. So they come, and, and they, they discover this place in the middle of the countryside, and there is peace, and there is tranquility, and the outer peace is mirrored by inner peace. all the anxieties float away and life is good and they feel wonderful and they have 10 days of this and that's that sense of 
of being at one with the universe sometimes lasts as long as 15 minutes. <laughs> at which point they start going, bloody hell, I'm here for <laughs> How long? <laughs> Nothing is happening. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? And then they go, they find our library and they read a book and then they go to find the television and then they discover that we don't have a television and there's a kind of, that's the first dark night of the soul right there. And so, and then we start the roller coaster, you see, because the truth is that once you are in truly in silence, not just the, the absence of noise, but that kind of positive stillness and, and so on that you, you hope to cultivate in places like retreat houses and monasteries and so on, um, you, are, you are placed in the presence of God and you are placed in the presence of yourself and other people without distraction and without shield. You, you enter into that kind of vulnerability. You come before God for half an hour of prayer and you've got lots of words. If you've got a liturgy, you've got tons of words to say to God. So it's perfectly safe. Yeah? You, you can present yourself to God, you can say some prayers and listen to some readings and go away and say, I spent half an hour in the presence of the Lord. You don't have to really have opened yourself up at all so you can feel good about that. Um, I'm often reminded of the verse in Genesis 3 after the fall where it says that the man and the woman hid themselves in the garden from the presence of the Lord. We do, we all do that. That's been the story of humanity ever since and one of the places we sometimes hide is in church. So we can hide behind those words. If that half an hour is simply silence spent in the presence of the Lord, you can't hide. You can't tell God who you, who you really are and manipulate your image and you, you, you can't um, offer prayers to propitiate his, what, fierce anger, disappointment, uncertainty, ignorance of you, whatever it is that you think. What, that question again, what do you think God sees when, when God looks at you? You can't do all that stuff. You just have to sit there. And whatever God is thinking of you, God is thinking of you. And you've got to deal with it. And whoever you are, you are. And you can't manage and manipulate. And what other, whatever other people are seeing in you, they're seeing in you. And you can't do anything about it. You are incredibly vulnerable. And it's intensely uncomfortable. The far side of that is, in, is extraordinarily life-giving. But there is a kind of a genuine dark night that has to be gone through first before that silence becomes life-giving. What comes out of the other end? If you go through that experience and you discover at the other end of it that this God who looks upon you in the silence, no longer able to justify yourself, looks down and says, as he said to over Christ, at both the glorious transfiguration but also in the baptism when Jesus identified with sinners in the River Jordan. Both times God looks down and says, my son, my beloved in whom I delight. If you are ever sat in silence and you have any sense of God singing over you, my son, my daughter, my beloved in whom I delight. If you have any sense of the grace of God at work in your life, taking all that is broken and astray and, and everything that is so disappointing about you but transforming it and restoring in you that image and likeness of God. If you have any sense of that happening, if you have any sense sometimes of, of the compassion of other human beings in silence when you see your true self beginning to emerge, you discover a compassion for other people and their failures as well. You've messed your life up. Oh, join the club. Take a ticket and join the line. I mean, haven't we all? So you, you find yourself surrounded suddenly by far more compassion and understanding than you ever thought was possible. And it's life transforming. But there's no shortcut to it. No one arrives 
at, at a retreat house and finds that in the first 15 minutes. That's why the crisis, that's why the hunt for the television. That's why. Some people never do. Some people will come and they will hide in the retreat house. And they will distract themselves. They'll come for 10 days and distract themselves persist constantly, 24-7, for, for 10 days. And they'll go away and they'll say, that was great. But it was like Teflon. It was just straight off. Didn't touch them. I don't even know if that... I, I can't even remember what the question was, except <laughs> it was to do with silence. But does that... That was helpful. Good. Hooray. Good. <laughs> You're very kind, thank you. You're a wonderful man. <laughs> <laughs> That's one. It is not uncommon for many people to wish dead on their adversaries as this woman was. But it seems to me that, in fact, what you did for us was more therapeutic than any psychiatrist would have done. But my question is, how does this relate with our Lord Jesus Christ saying, Sure, so uh, um, I don't know all the answer to this. This is my best shot. The question is, how do we, in, encouraging that woman to pray for the death of the, uh, of, the, of the man who hurt her so much, how do we reconcile that with Jesus on the cross saying, Lord, well, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, that, that forgiveness. Um, I would want to say that absolutely that Jesus taught that we should forgive, right? And Jesus taught that we should love our enemies. But Jesus was also a realist. He knew that we would have enemies, that's why he told us to love them. He didn't say don't have enemies, he said love your enemies. So there's a recognition there that there's a kind of gap between what we shall one day be, become by the grace of God when the likeness of Christ is fully formed in us and what we are now. There's a gap there and, and the gospel is constantly wrestling with that gap. Um, and, and what we hope that one day we shall be by the grace of God is a people who are able uh, to... to constantly offer grace and forgiveness and mercy to those, even those who wound us the most deeply. But most of us are not there yet. And, and encouraging that woman to pray as I, as I did, I was not actually trying to encourage her to hold on to her bitterness. In fact, quite the reverse. I was encouraging her to open it up to God, but to tell the truth about it in order that she could, I hoped, begin to experience that transformation, but that she would stop trying to do it herself. That she would stop looking at all that bitterness within and saying, I will fix this and then I will come to God and say, look, I've done it. You told me to forgive, now I forgive. But that instead, a little bit like the famous fellow in the Gospels who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a sort of attitude of heart that says, I acknowledge that the desirable thing to do here is to forgive and be gracious. I can't do it. But I'm not going to pretend that I can I acknowledge that that's the, the way of the gospel. This is who I am, and I will also tell the truth about that. The only way I'm ever going to get from here to there is by the grace of God, by the healing work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I lack the capacity to get there myself. So that really is all that I was uh, encouraging her to do. Of course, um, in, the, uh, in the, the classic liturgy of of monastic communities and liturgical churches, the, the praying of the Psalms is always followed by the reading of and meditation on Scripture. So we tell the truth about who we are, but then we hear the story of who we will be. 
So we are constantly playing with that tension. We're not ignoring the fact that that grace leads us towards forgiveness. Does that help? That's my best shot. Brilliant. And it's two o'clock. Perfect timing. Thank you. I'm just going to say thank you. The first time. <laughs>